Okay, tonight we're going to continue with our Effective Corporate Kingdom Prayer Series. And uh, in, our, in the original titles, we said Chapter 1 was Prayer Catalyst of Visitation. We did uh, several weeks on that. Uh, chapter 2 is called Keys to Effective Prayer. I'm going to skip that for now, but that we're going to cover seven keys to effective prayer um, at some point. Because our basis for the series is saying in James 5.16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, if you learn how to re read the reverse negative, which is the key to reading comprehension, always learn to read what it's not saying. So if it says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, then it must be possible to have ineffective prayer that doesn't accomplish much. Okay, so what we're trying to, to find out here is how do we learn how to pray so that we actually accomplish the birthing and establishing of God's eternal kingdom purposes. God's goal is to fill the earth with his glory, to raise up his church. Isaiah 2 says it'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. God has much more to do yet. And there are hundreds of scriptures that, that uh, have to be ignored if you're going to continue to always hold on to this negative view that it's going to get darker and darker and the only way any, the kingdom can come is by some bailout cataclysmic event and Jesus and the Holy Spirit aren't powerful enough to convert the world or take on the devil or any of that. If you're going to hold on to all that unbiblical nonsense, you have to ignore a lot of scripture or just not read a lot of scripture. But, you know, the, the Bible is clear that the, the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God's whole goal in the Garden of Eden was to be, for man to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, and to produce God's glory all in and all through it. And his purpose didn't shatter when man fell. God is above all that. He has an eternal sovereign decree, and he is working to sum up all things, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in Christ. And Christ is in you, and you are in Christ. We are the body of Christ. So there is effective prayer, and there are keys to effective prayer. Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're to be praying for. He wouldn't have us be praying for something that's contrary to what we're to be expecting or working for. His kingdom will be established in all the earth. A couple quotes for this series. When all is said and done regarding prayer, there's often more said than done. And then prayer is a dynamic interplay between God and us, whereby his redemptive kingdom purposes are birthed and established. Prayer is a dynamic interplay between God and us, whereby his redemptive kingdom purposes are birthed and established. Now, when we say a dynamic interplay, we mean communion with God. We mean communication with God. We mean dialogue. We mean interaction. We mean fellowship. Prayer is only possible in the presence of God. Paul says that, that those who are in Christ have been seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places with Christ. We pray out of the throne room of the King, hearing the messages of the King, hearing the voice of the King, by the Spirit of the King, according to the Word of the King. And that, uh, so what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to start chapter 3. I'm actually skipping chapter 2 for now. We'll come back to it. But I wanted to, before the summer got done, I wanted to get as much of chapter 3 done as I can. So we're going to look at five types of prayer. And again, so we're, if you look at your uh, series, at your outline there, uh, Roman numeral 3 says five types of prayer. Uh, somebody give Jeff an outline. Okay, there you go. So five types of prayer. Number one. Reading Scripture as prayer. Do you know that reading the Bible is the first and foremost most important type of prayer you can pray? 
We'll look at that. Because when you're reading the Bible, you're communing with God's heart. You're knowing his ways. You're studying his law, his plans, and and a lot more in his word. One of the things that reading the Bible does is it keeps prayer from being this one-way laundry list of what we want from God, as if we're spoiled little children. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And uh, that's how most prayer meetings go. But what God wants is for us to pray in his will, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says this, This is the confidence we have before him, that is God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request with which we have asked from him. That's one of the keys to effective prayer. Had we covered chapter 2 already, we would have made, done a lot with that verse. If you pray according to the purpose and intention of God, God is inclined to answer prayers that are according to his purpose. He doesn't always, uh, it's, there's uh, not a lot of wisdom to be gained from certain worldly sources, but one very worldly source called the Rolling Stones wrote a song. He says, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometime, you just might find you can get what you need. Well, Mick Jagger is not normally a source of wisdom, but, uh, <laughs> but in that particular, you know, even, uh, even the ungodly, because of the doctrine of general revelation and common grace, are right sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so, the truth of the matter is, uh, you can't just pray for all the things you want. The Bible says that God will give you the desires of your heart if the desires of your heart are the desires of his heart. So if you want the desires of your heart, don't seek to get the desires of your heart. Seek to get your heart aligned with his heart. Seek to have your will be, be swallowed up in the, your love for him. The, the Greek word doulos or bond slave, which Paul introduces himself in two of his letters as a bond servant before he calls himself an apostle, and that's very important. I like in the Anglican tradition, everyone is ordained as a deacon that is a bond servant first. And no matter whether you're a, a pastor, bishop, whatever you are, you're always a deacon first, which a deacon is a table waiter. A deacon is a bondservant. A deacon is one uh, one whose will has been consumed by the will of another, that I'm in love with God so much that I will that my will would be his will. That is, I will that my will would get in line with his will. That's the secret to, to walking with God and to effective prayer. So reading scripture is prayer. Then weeks to come, we're going to look at prayer, re- praise and worship is prayer because praise and worship is communing with God's Holy Spirit and his manifest presence in our worship. We're going to look at petitions as prayer. That's what most prayer is, letting our requests be made known to God. And I've already sort of preached on my opinion about how we need to make our will his will, praying his will, and releasing our faith by thanksgiving. We tend to grumble and complain and be discontent. But the, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, let your petitions be known with thanksgiving, because when you start thanking God, you become content, and you release faith to trust that he will manifest what you need and who you need and what you need him or her for and what you need this and that for according to his time. You know, I always tell young men, don't concentrate on praying for a spouse. Concentrate on becoming a faithful man. And God will uh, take care of the rest. Intercession, uh, a type of prayer that's almost never done uh, fully in our day. Effective intercession has a complete list of principles. And those principles are modeled by various great intercessors in the Bible that we're going to look at. We're going to break that down at least into an A and a B, and we'll look at some of the great um, intercessors of the Bible after we look at all the principles of intercession. And if you want to be effective in intercessory prayer, learn to pray all the principles of intercessory prayer.
and you follow Nehemiah and Abraham and Ezra and others who are great examples of intercessory prayer warriors. Then finally, spiritual warfare, which there's an offense of taking new ground, binding spirits in the heavenlies and, and praying forth the spirit and going forth to proclaim the kingdom gospel in an area and so forth. That's the taking the offensive. And the, the, the difficulty about leading Christians into the offensive in our day and age is that we don't have enough defense. And so too many, there's too many people burn out, get taken into sin, fall and stumble in various ways or so forth. Cause we, uh, you know, we have to learn how to get the enemy out of us before we can begin to take new ground for Christ. Uh, a, a very first step is to, is after you're born again, to be baptized in this Holy spirit, to be water baptized, to be delivered from demonic spirits, to be have inner healing and, and to become a part of a community of believers where you walk in the light as he is in the light so that the, so that the enemy can't come after you about anything. So with, you know, in other words, you have to fight to progressively win. You don't win the, you know, uh, the United States entered World War II after, uh, December 7th, December 8th, 1941. But we didn't invade uh, Normandy until, uh, I don't know, uh, can't remember what year it was the june 6th 44 44 i couldn't remember i knew it the june 6th part but i forgot the year that's two and a half years it took us two and a half years to prepare to invade normandy think about that it's amazing because it was a great conflict people want to win all that the demonic ground in their life and cast out all the demons that have Built, it's been 20 years building up their presence in your life in 10 minutes. You got to lay the groundwork right. Uh, you got the, one of the first things you can do to prepare yourself for deliverance is get to know the whole Bible for hours and hours and hours, as we're going to talk about tonight. Be, so that you can, Jesus said in John 12 that the ruler of this world comes, but he has nothing in me. And we, you can act, the purpose of a Christian community is to have God-ordained eldership that are under apostolic authority because, see, God, the, this whole idea where people raise themselves up by their own giftedness and so forth, the reason it's, it's actually very demonic idea, and a lot of good people or Christians are doing that because they don't know any better, because all the battle of the universe is about spiritual authority. Isaiah 53 preaches the gospel when it says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. When I'm the only one calling the shots about what I'm going to teach and what I'm going to minister, and I'm not under uh, biblically ordained elders and, and apostolic leadership outside the church and eldership in the church, then I'm not really operating according to the principles of being under God's authority. That read the book Spiritual Authority by Watchman Nee. That's what he he actually says that if you you can actually be casting out demons, proclaiming the kingdom, doing all sorts of things for God, and not doing it according to the principles of Christ and His kingdom, if you're not a team player under authority. There's a a lot of many anointed men of God doing that out there, and uh, unfortunately. In most cases, they end up casualties of war at some point, usually when they start making their greatest progress. Externally is when they begin to fall apart internally. So um, those are the five types of prayer. Again, scripture, reading, worship, petitions with thanksgiving, intercessions, and spiritual warfare over the next eight or ten weeks we're going to look at all five of those and that's pretty much all the further we're going to get this summer because uh it's already late july or mid-july and come late august we'll be back at Wright state on wednesday and thursday nights so i'm planning to have a bible study uh, our main meeting will be tuesday nights again at Wright state but i'm planning to have a bible study on wednesdays and a bible study on thursdays this coming year so Number four, Roman numeral number four on your outline. Let's talk, let's focus for tonight on the first type of prayer, which is reading scripture as prayer. Uh, in other words, reading scripture to commune with the living word by reflectively reading his written word. 
Now, in the first several centuries, the the Christians taught the apostles and the disciples of the apostles, like Polycarp, Justin Martyr, the Irenaeus, the the first several centuries. Uh, Irenaeus, I guess it's pronounced. I've never known how to pronounce it. Um, the the emphasis was this: that Jesus Christ is the eternal living Word of God. God. The Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit created us to have fellowship. God's goal isn't that you become religious or become exceedingly religiously righteous. He wants you to have true righteousness, which is right relationship to him and his word. You can't really be godly or righteous if you don't know his word thoroughly. The Bible makes clear Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. Scripture is what God has spoken out of the abundance of his heart to us. You could no more say you really love God and constantly give way to being distracted from your scripture reading than to say you really love this girl and she says, why do you never call? (laughs) If we're in love, why don't we ever go for a walk? right? If you really love someone, you're going to want to talk to them face to face. You're not going to want to text an instant message or Facebook the person you're in love with. That's for shallow friendships, right? If you're really in love with somebody, if let's say uh, for some reason God has you apart and you're a missionary to Africa and you're going to at least want to Skype, <laughs> you know, you're you're not going to just want a Facebook, right? If you love the Lord, you're going to want to know the fullness of fills his heart, and which is the scripture. Now, Jesus is called the word of God. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. They're listed uh, somewhere in here. Let's see where. Uh, um, well, it, I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's look at some aspects of what it means to know the Lord. Now, these aspects of knowing the Lord are inextricably intertwined with each other and with some other aspects. Okay, in other words, if you want to know God, you have let's break that down a little bit. Does that make sense? The first thing I want to say is, is that Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says this. I love this scripture. Thus saith the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Now, one thing I love observing is how um, especially young men have these little boast fights. And they boast about who's who likes the better sports team and le- I like LeBron and you like Kobe or <laughs> all sorts of nonsense that they try to one-up their each other. You know, my dad can beat up your dad and <laughs> whatever. And I I know more about that. You know, it's, it's, it's what the Bible calls don't love the things of this world, the boastful pride of life, right? The boastful pride of life is one of the the deadly sins of the worldly ways. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of shallow posturing, even in the church, is just the boastful pride of life. That's really all it is, right? So the Bible is saying kind of an ironic thing here because it says if you're going to boast, there's really only one thing that's really important. All this nonsense about I got this kind of point average and I – accumulated this much money and I got this kind of house and this kind of car and this good looking of a babe and whatever people want to boast in is all just worldly crap. James says, you adulteresses, don't you understand that friendship with the world is its hostility toward God? The only thing worth actually caring about in this world is boasting that you know the Lord. And you can't know him apart from knowing his word thoroughly. 
Otherwise, you'll have a very subjective, feely, uh, deceived views of God. With some, you know, by the hopefully by the power of the Holy Spirit, some truth is mixed in with a lot of confusion. Now, the ironic thing about that is the more you know the Lord, the more you know that you don't know the Lord. The deeper you go in God, the more your eyes are open to see the omnipotence of God, the omniscience of God, the immutability of God, the eternal nature of God. The more you see that the journey is wonderful because his ways are past finding out. His under, you know, Paul goes into these, uh, I call him his, um, his uh, gospel, what I used to call him, his gospel, um, kind of his ecstatic gospel worship sidebars where he, he'll be talking about the gospel and he says, oh, the depths and heights and wisdom of God, how unsearchable are his way. He just kind of breaks into worship. He's, he's kind of gospel kingdom worshiping <laughs> right in the middle of his thoughts. And uh, the more you know the Lord, the more you see how, how great he is. And the more you see that if you look back, while it may look like you've come a long way, in reality, as Paul says in Philippians 3, I press on that I might know him, uh, not that I have attained it. Paul was saying that he hasn't attained to anything yet. He wants to forget what he's attained to, press on to the great upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that he might know him and the power of his resurrection and attain to the things that God attained him for. That's the Apostle Paul, and that was the Philippians is one of the last two letters he writes that from jail just before he gets executed. That's toward the end of his ministry. He's say, basically saying, I'm just beginning to know Christ, but I'm going to press into knowing him. So this verse in Jeremiah, what, what I love about it, it's so iron, ironic, is that anyone who knows the Lord wouldn't boast in knowing the Lord. <laughs> I hope you see the humor in that. The more you know the Lord, the more you kind of know that you don't really know that much about the Lord. <laughs> but that you know more than you knew yesterday, and you know more maybe than you knew a few hours ago, if you, especially if you spend some time in your study, reading and studying or whatever. But in some things are getting more clear, but we see in a mirror dimly. Then we'll see face to face. The beauty of this Christian life is the only destination is Christ. So many Christians come a little way, look back at who they were, and, and thank God for how far he's taken them, which is appropriate to a certain level. But that's, but that's where they get content to stay. So if you've had really dry worship and you've come out of like a cessationist background or where in this kind of thing, and then you begin to touch the spirit of God in worship, you can have a tendency to think, oh, there's so much life in this. But you compare yourself to what you had before instead of what you read in the Psalms. Instead of what you read about in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, instead of those great scenes of worship in Revelation 4 and 5, when our worship looks like Revelation 4 and 5, then we'll be getting somewhere. Don't look back. Understand, like, if you've, you, because, you know, we are, like, so content to, you know, I used to have a desert. and that, So now we, there's a dampness of life in me. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and then maybe eventually we go, oh, there's a couple of drips dripping once in a while. You know, but, you know, press in till there's a river of life flowing in you, through you, out from you that finish the rest of the song that makes the sets the captives free, makes the blind to see, opens prison doors. Uh that's true in anything. We think because uh, we watched a Christian television show and and heard a teaching from Brother Greg, and Brother Greg uses more scriptures than most people, that we know some Bible. That's nonsense. <laughs> know the Bible. Spend hours studying the Gospels. There could be no more greater adventure than going through the Gospels over and over and over and over until you see Jesus. And you see Jesus, and you see Jesus, and then you start to see Jesus. That's the most exciting adventure there is in life. Everything else is trying to keep you from that.
Most of life is a temptation to keep you from being like Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his word, and she would not let that be taken away from her. Jesus was coming to visit. I, what would happen if, uh, you know, Beth got a phone call and Beth, ring, 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 ring. Hello? This is Jesus. Coming over for dinner Thursday night. Uh, she'd be calling everyone in the church. Can you help me finish this painting? Can you can you help me mow the lawn? We got to get do do something about these weeds over here and and the cobwebs up here. And you know maybe I need to build an addition on the back. And you know and you know that was what Martha was doing. And that's what we do with Facebook and Christian television and Christian radio and. Uh, all sorts of nonsense other than than sitting at his feet and read his word. And most of us never, the Bible, Jesus said that from the time of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Most people, thank you, I'll take one too. Uh, most people never press through to... Uh, to push the things out of their life that are keeping them from knowing the Lord. So let's look at some aspects of knowing the Lord I, with that little preaching. Uh, thanks, Paul. You could have got one for yourself if you want. So the first thing is I call knowing God's heart, mind, and thoughts. When I pray, just to let you know, I say things like, God, let me know your heart which is different than let me know your mind. Let me know your thoughts. I also say, God, let me know your ways, which is different than the others. Every day I pray that. That's why I study the word, to answer those prayers. Let me know your law. Let me know your plans and purpose. Now, break it down like that, and you'll begin to know the Lord. You know, I, I have friendships with many, with everyone in this room, I guess. But, uh, you know, I know this part of your life and that part of your life, but I don't know this other part of your life. In some cases, it might not be appropriate to know every part of your life or whatever. But, you know, obviously, uh, relationships are ongoing and, and can always grow. So let's look at the first one on this list is God's heart, mind, and thoughts. In Isaiah 55, 11 through 12, Isaiah is actually uh, says, um, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. Do I have that written here somewhere? I don't. Let's, let's uh, oh no, it's down below. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now, what happens in Christian circles today is people actually don't read the Bible in context very well. So they actually don't understand, like, the spirit of what prophets are talking about is calling us back to covenant faithfulness. They think it's about, like, prophesying the end times or something. So they miss the point of these verses. It's not saying, see, Paul, God's ways are not your ways, and his thoughts are not your thoughts. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's how the average person interprets it today. But it's not that. He's rebuking them because he's saying, by now, Israel, you've walked with God long enough and far enough that your thoughts ought to be his thoughts, and your ways ought to be his ways, and you haven't spent the proper amount of time studying his word and getting to know him, so they're not. His thoughts are need to be your thoughts, and his ways need to be your ways, and that's what's expected of a Christian who's growing up. You know, when my son was in first grade, he was asked what he wanted to be in life, and he wrote, I want to lease. I want to be a leasing. I want to do leasing. He, he didn't even know what leasing meant. That was what I was doing at the time vocationally. He was saying, I want to be like my dad, but he didn't understand much about what that meant. But when he got to be 18 and 22 and 24 years old, he began to pass me in many of my understandings of God and his word and, and many quali character qualities of integrity and wisdom and humility and things like that. Because that's what it means to grow up. 
to become so knowledgeable of your father's ways and thoughts that you your ways become his ways. And what I'm when I try to when I disciple a young man like Paul or something, my goal is that someday someone's going to say, "Well, I need to know more about God's God or God's way. I need to be discipled in God's way. Uh, I need to learn about casting out demons, or I need to learn about." counseling or i need to learn about being baptized in the spirit or how you know how you be a good husband or a good worker on your job or all the i need to know all these christian integrity things and i'm gonna say bob thank you for that desire let me introduce you to my friend paul and the key to knowing all those things is just hang out with him <laughs> jesus appointed the 12 it says that they might be with him what you should be able to say as a Christian, you want to know God, hang out with me. That's that's the goal. When you start to mature in the Lord, you you, you want to know emotional stability, vocational maturity, uh, re, re, financial integrity. You want to know any of the aspects of the full counsel of God, just come over for lunch. And start coming over for lunch pretty regularly and let's go to five guys or let's go walk on the bike path or let's talk about about the things let's have some bible studies hang out that's what what that's what isaiah is saying he's saying for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts but he does that's not where he wants to leave you Jesus uh, teaching about the commandments, they, they uh, always wanted to trick him up, so they said, what's the great commandment of the law? Because the Pharisees understood the inter interconnectedness of all the law, and that if you break the law at one point, you're guilty of all. And they were actually trying to trick him with this question. So he said this, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, I'm sorry, with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, if you look at the Hebrew versions, uh, first of all, this summarizes the first four commandments in one in one saying. So he outtricked them, so to speak, as he always did. This is the great and foremost commandment. But if you look at the Hebrew versions of this, in Deuteronomy and so forth, they leave out the phrase mind all your mind. But if you look at the Greek version, the Septuagint version, which was made uh, after Alexander conquered the, the Jews in 333 BC, the Jewish version, as if God was anticipating the gospel penetrating into all of Roman culture and then all the world, adds the phrase, with all your mind. Jesus, when he quoted, sometimes quoted the Hebrew text, and he sometimes quoted the Septuagint Greek text. And so did the apostles, and they quoted them with as if they were equal authority, because Jesus is trying to make a point here. Of course, your soul is part of your mind. So you could say, when you say you love God with all your soul, you could say your soul is your emotions and your will and your mind. But Jesus is emphasizing the mind, and that's exactly what we have not done in the last 150 years. There have been several Christian authors that I would recommend to you. One is Harry Blamire's uh, book called The Christian Mind, written in 1963. And uh, he was a disciple and protege of, of C.S. Lewis's. And he was basically saying that prior to the advent of fundamentalism and evangelicalism, that the Christian tradition starting in the late first century as the apostles were dying off and handing the baton to Polycarp and their disciples, there, were, there began to emerge a great Christian tradition that had started in Paul and John and continued beyond them uh, of, of Christians having greater intellectual prowess than the, than the empty philosophies around them. Now, as we've lost this, as we have lost the diligence to study, and it's always about the fun parts all the time. As we've lost that diligence to study, 
we've given birth to the most secular culture in the history of, of the West. And it's because we don't have any moves on the chessboard, so to speak, to counteract the worldliness of, of false intellectualism. Because we have, we don't have no understanding of Christian epistemology. Most Christians wouldn't know what that means. And the tragedy of it all, you know, I've been having a little debate on Facebook the last few days with a young man that I met at Wright State when he was a freshman, and he had come out of a Methodist church, and he was born again. He uh, and uh, supposedly loved the Lord, and so forth. And in, in a year and a half, he's completely lost his faith to the biology teachers, chemistry teachers, and so forth, partly because the faith was his faith was too shallow, but it's because the whole church's faith is too shallow. And it wasn't able to stand up to an epistemology that he didn't understand. My point is this is that you have, one of the wonderful things I love about Christianity is whenever you're challenged with something scripturally that you don't live up to, don't try to get all religious and say, I, I'm going to do better than this and try harder and, and, and act like you really do live this. Not, not All of that is the hypocrisy and shallowness of our times. Hebrews 4.16 says this, let us draw near it to the throne of grace in time of help to find mercy and grace to help. The first thing you do to overcome anything is admit to God the problem with no blame shifting, excuse making, or rationalizing. Say, Lord, when it comes to studying your word, I've not been very motivated, neither have I been diligent, and I've let even the service of you. That's what, that's what Martha did. She let the service of Christ crowd her out, and Mary didn't from hearing the word of Christ. You know what, if you're going to so many Christian meetings that you have that you have no time to study this kind of stuff and study the word thoroughly, then you're going to too many Christian meetings. I'm all for fellowship. I think you need to worship, fellowship, hear the word of taught several times a week together. The Christians shared life together. They weren't just together once a week or something. I think you need to be with other Christians worshiping, hearing the word, being teaching, praying several times a week. However, you need to be alone with God, studying his word several times a day, every day. Love God with all your mind isn't as tintillating and fun as worshiping, speaking in tongues, or casting out demons, or any of that. I enjoy doing all those things. But I enjoy the most sitting in my study with no interruptions and, and reading scripture and, and wrestling with God and asking him questions and repenting before the word and admitting my shortcomings and asking for grace and having an inner uh a wrestling match with the, the Lord himself through his, through the scriptures so that he can subdue my flesh and birth his kingdom in my heart and so forth. Secondly, God's ways. We already read a scripture about God's ways. Let me define God's ways a little more clearly for you. God's ways or his dealings or his testings are how does God take his people and individuals from darkness to light, from Egypt to the promised land. There's lots of metaphors for the journey in scripture, but guess what? You were, as the psalmist says, I was born entirely in sin, and in sin did my mother give birth to me. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I was raised in, in church, but I didn't know the Lord. And in a lot of ways, religious religion can have a more blinding effect than just being a pagan can in some ways. And I actually became a pagan. I became a, a atheistic and agnostic and became a drug addict and all kind of stuff. But, it, you know, when you come to know the Lord, you were in total darkness before that. 
And I don't care how many religious camps you went to and how much your church says Bible believing on the label or the document in faith until you powerfully encounter the risen living Jesus Christ in the kind of way that Paul did in Acts 9, you're blind, deaf, dumb, and stupid. And you need, when he comes into your life, he takes you on a journey out of darkness and into truth, out of bondage and into freedom, out of Adam-likeness and worldliness into Christ-likeness, out of knowing nothing about God's eternal purposes into being the, the confidant of his eternal purposes. So, um, God's ways are very, very important to find out. Because if you don't, you won't recognize your battles with the flesh is God's, bless, is God's gift to you. You won't thank God for temptation and see every temptation as an opportunity to meet him on the other side of cross, the cross in the power of his resurrection. You'll be afraid of the temptation. You'll be trying to overcome the temptation in and of your own power. Flip over. Um, God's law. Antinomianism versus theonomy. I wish I had more time to develop this, but Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of God, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of God. See the rest of Matthew 20 through 48 to, to see how he applies what he said in those three verses, the rest of the chapter in what's called case laws, uh, how the law of God is applied. Galatians 3.24, Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to leave us to Christ so that we may justify by faith. Now, I can't develop this right now. We'll develop that way more in the kingdom of God series when we talk about current concepts and that are hindering the kingdom of God. But I'll just say this. If you go back and study the teachings of Luther, Calvin, Knox, uh, etc., Melanch Philip Melanchthon, all the reformers, uh, you'll understand that they had a position that was called theonomy. And they, uh, uh, George Whitfield, John Wesley, uh, Jonathan Edwards, the Puritans, all these guys, they, they saw the law as having three ongoing purposes. Today, well, you don't, you're not under law, but you're under grace, brothers. Uh, the law has, you know, been, not been abolished and all this kind of stuff. What that leads to, what's called antinomianism, is that righteousness is whatever you feel it is. But God is eternal. He doesn't change. If he didn't like adultery then, guess what? He still doesn't like it now. He says, I hate divorce. So he's not that thrilled about it now. If he, he didn't say, thou shall not steal until I rise from the dead and abolish the law, and then you can steal all you want. You can even vote for the federal government to steal more of your stuff if you want. It's stealing, 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 whether the government does it or not. And it will bring retribution and, and, and the wrath of God. The law had, the, the Puritans saw it as having several purposes. One, to convict us of sin, to be our tutor, to lead us to Christ. Two, for sanctification. And three, for society. Guess what? In the Noah covenant, which is still in force, God promised that whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, right? So when we live in a society that increasingly uh, allows for murder, 
then what we're saying in our hearts is we're murderers in our hearts, so we don't want to see that judged according to God's law or God's word. I, I just saw a case yesterday where judgment was passed. This guy openly admitted to, to brutally murdering a grandmother and daughter or something like that. Two, two, pe- two people just went into their farmhouse and just tortured them and killed them for no reason. And uh, he got 36 years. And guess what? They got life. <laughs> they got death. In other words, they got something permanent. This guy's going to be out of jail when he's 54 years old. I'm 57. I hopefully still have another 30 or 35 years, but they don't have any more time. Now, that has nothing to do with the church's ministry. We're to lead people to Christ and minister forgiveness and restoration. But the, the civil government bears the sword for a reason. That's the third purpose of the law. God's law is still his eternal purposes. And if you, if you understand this about the Bible, you'll get a lot further. People always go, well, I get bogged down in the Old Testament. One of the things, one of the many ways to know, you know, the Old Testament better is to understand this. In Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, God gives us the Ten Commandments. In much of the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, he gives us case laws as to what the Ten Commandments mean. Most English translations call them statutes. Okay, Jesus gives us case laws. He says, you've heard the law that you shall not commit adultery. Here's a case law. If you even lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've heard that you're not supposed to murder. Here's the case law. I say to you, if you're my disciple, because in Matthew 5, he's teaching disciples what it means to be Christ-like and to carry the spirit and character of Christ who came to fulfill the law, that is, put it into force. He is the telos of the law. I wish I could go into that. Romans 10.4. Look up the Greek if you want, Romans 10.4. He's the goal of the law, the end of the law. That is, he's the purpose of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. Uh he came to do all that. So if you're not supposed to murder in Christ, your heart gets changed. You become a new creation. So you don't even want to be angry with your brother in your heart. You don't want to belittle another human being because that's a type of murder. You know, the cut down wars that teenage boys have, they're just murdering each other with their mouths. Lastly, on this, God's plans and purposes. God's eternal decree and his eternal covenant. We talked about as uh, in chapter 3a of the uh, Kingdom of God series, that God declares the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things have been done. God has an eternal covenant, Hebrews 13, 20, and he's working toward a preordained plan, and he doesn't change that. Now, next week, I'm going to just give you a foreshadowing. Since we got started late tonight, I'm just going to bring this to a close. I want to give us a summary of B and C real quick. We're going to talk about how Christ is the living word, and he's known through the written word. So if you don't read the word enough, we have a, a Bible study called The Bible on the Importance of Bible Study, which is designed to help you start growing your hunger for the Word. It's something you can grow. Guess what? If you give in to sexual sin, the temptation will grow. If you give in to sleeping too much, you'll become more and more dependent on sleeping too much. Everything you feed, good or bad, you can use that principle for good. If you're hungry for God it, and you feed that hunger, just like when you have a nice meal, you're not hungry for a little while. But if you have a really, really big meal, when that hunger wears off, usually the next morning, or when that satiation wears off, guess what? You're more powerfully hungry, right? You want a big breakfast, right? And it's this, you can actually use that principle for good you can build a greater desire to know the Lord. Cry out to him for that. Ask him for it. Pursue it. 
ask you to ask him to, to give it to you in practical ways where you s- sit back with a notebook and analyze the things that that steal the time of away from the word and go for it because we're going to look at a lot of scriptures next week that make it really clear that if you want to find Jesus you're going to find him in the bible more than any other place i love worshiping i love fellowshipping with the brothers and sisters i love i love all that kind of stuff but if you really want to know Jesus you'll find him with you a Bible, and a prayer closet. And have your prayer closet wherever works. If you don't have the kind of house where you can be left alone, I, for years, I, I just took a, I took a plastic thing I bought at a place that you're supposed to put on, a, on like a treadmill, and I put it over my steering wheel so I could stick it in the car. Now, don't do that while you're driving. I did that at the park. When I got to the park, I pulled the plastic thing out, put it on the steering wheel, I used to, uh, for instance, in, in the early years of this church, my kids were actually still teenagers back then, and I used to drop Victor and Elizabeth off at Stiver School for the Arts at 7 uh, to 7.10 every morning. Then I would drive over to the Y, and I would sit outside the Y until 10 uh, or so and read the Word. Now it started to get to be 10.30, and started to get to be 11, and started to get to 12. I hope that you get to the place where your temptations that I have to talk to you about is that you're reading the word too much. (laughs) That's really where you want. You can actually get that kind of hunger going. Like, Beth, you mean to tell me you you stay up till 1 or 2 in the morning reading the word when you got to get to work at 7 the next day? Maybe you should quit reading at 10 or 11. I, I would hope if, I will hope someday I'll have to rebuke, rebuke Paul Cop for that, you know. But, you know, Paul's supposed to be at work every morning at 8, and he quits reading the Bible at 3 a.m., when maybe he should quit reading the Bible at 10 or 11. That I mean, that's really what started happening. And then I started, you know, I was supposed to work out from 10 till noon, and then I started getting home at 2 and 3 o'clock for my workout because I also had a tendency to make my workouts get longer and longer. And Because whatever you do, you get addicted to. So hopefully we'll look at that next week, and then we'll also talk about the whole concept of meditating on Scripture. Uh, give you a, a little gross tidbit ahead of time. To meditate means to re, to chew up, swallow, and throw back up and chew it again. <laughs> so it means to, to really mull it over. And uh, so we'll stop there for tonight. We'll finish uh, we'll finish chapter uh, three a two next week. Communing with God's word. Amen.